This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You need to show people the worst possible harm that that negligence could have caused, because that's what the case is about. I'm asking you to do is to focus on what you can control, because that's where the power lies. The Dalai Lama uh, has a saying that in the face of anger, justice evaporates. If you can't focus group it, you have to be very, very critical of your process. The facts aren't good. You can't create a miracle. We can agree to disagree and be zealous advocates for our clients. Quit worrying about looking perfect. You're not going to. That'll come in time, but you can still be an effective litigator. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, I have my partner, Sonia Rodriguez, and we're going to talk about our strategies, uh, what works and what doesn't work for dealing with so-called defense experts, or as uh, Keith Bitvick calls them, and I parrot, uh, defense paid opinion witnesses. How are you doing today, Sonia? I'm great, Michael. How are you? I'm doing Okay. So, you know, it seems like every case that we have, the insurance company goes and hires a bunch of uh, supposed experts to come and say how the crash wasn't their fault, or if it was their fault, it couldn't have caused our client's injuries, or if our client's hurt, our client was either hurt before or the, or whatever they had went away quickly. Um, what are some things that you do to deal with that? So one of my favorite things that I like to do is um, I look at the expert's CV, you know, the the curriculum vitae or the resume of the witness, and I find out, you know, what organizations and associations they are um, uh, affiliated with. And and lots of times uh, those organizations will have uh, ethical guidelines, standards, uh, that are supposed to influence or guide uh, the members' testimony, paid testimony, especially in the arena of doctors. You know that the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has ethical guidelines for doctors' testimony. Uh, the American Medical Association has guidelines. And so, so the engineering uh, bodies, they typically have the guidelines. Right. So I think it's always smart to start from the very, very beginning and use that as kind of a framework for what the witness is supposed to ethically do in a deposition. And I like to use that early on and uh, get them to agree that they've um, abided by the ethical standards in their industry. And and, uh, it, it, it helps sometimes when you are getting a witness that's straying a little far from uh, impartiality. And uh, it helps to kind of remind them that, number one, um, their ethical guidelines require them to be impartial. Um, And number two, um, they've already committed under oath that that they were going to do so in their testimony. So I guess what you're trying to do is, you know, the defense is, is presenting these people as supposed, you know, uh, objective experts to come and, and reveal the truth to the jury. Uh, and what you're, I guess what you're trying to do with the ethic rules, if they're, if they're violating their own ethical rules and the way they're giving, they're formulating their opinions or they're giving their testimony, then they are, uh, 
they're straying from what they what you're exposing them. They're, they're not true ethical members of their profession, but yet they're cheating, they're breaking the rules, and they're doing it because they want to get paid money to help the other side in a lawsuit because that's their real business. It, it actually works perfectly in cases um, in, in the medical profession where the doctor's testimony is supposed to be fair and impartial. And uh, in many ethical rules, there's a requirement that they consider all evidence, including deposition testimony. So it really works well when you have a doctor who has uh, picked and chosen what pieces of medical um, testimony or medical evidence they're going to use in support of their opinions and then selectively uh, ignored other pieces of medical evidence or even deposition testimony. So I like using the, the medical guidelines um, for the ethical guidelines for the profession, engineers or doctors, you know, kind of as a framework, a baseline for what we're going to expect the witness to testify to. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it always amazes me with, you know, defense medical paid opinion witnesses, how every injury my client sustains in a crash goes away in six to 12 weeks. Uh, and anything that continuing after that must have been pre-existing degeneration. But if something happened to them 10 years before the crash, even if they had never seen a doctor forward for the last nine years, somehow that prior injury is responsible for everything they have today. Um, it's just amazing the 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 you know they're they're paid advocates. They're not neutral, and I think exposing them uh, is really important for us. Uh, but I think how we go about it is really important too, because you know jurors are suspicious, and jurors give a lot more weight to something they come up with on their own, as opposed to what you tell them or try to put down your throat. So I like, I really like your idea of, of showing that this, these are the roles for experts. I mean, you have to be fair and impartial. Let's say the orthopedic uh, surgeons, is it the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, I think? Yes. They're, they're, they have testimony guidelines that you showed me earlier today. And one, they have to be fair and impartial, which means they can't pick, you know, pick and choose what evidence supports them and, and discount the other evidence. But then they also have to review not just the records, but the deposition testimony. And so if they're, if they're just taking the position that the client is lying in the deposition without some real evidence the client's lying in the deposition, then they're not being an objective expert anymore because they would, an objective expert would have to say, well, the client said this, and if that's true, then this is all related to the crash. But if it's not true, then it's not, rather than saying, I don't believe them. It's really, really tough for a doctor to say that he or she is going to ignore what the, the witness testifies to under oath about their pain and the, the onset of pain and their description of the pain when they have also testified that the physical exam and the patient history is such a critical part of making a diagnosis. So what I like to do is get those witnesses to talk about why the physical exam and the patient history is such a huge part of making a diagnosis in their private practice and why it's so important to, to listen to the patient and listen to what the patient's description of pain was and when it, it began and how it began and, and how long it lasted. And then when you um, point out that they uh, chose to ignore the depot testimony about when that big pain began at the scene of the crash, for example, um, 
it, it really puts them in a tough spot because they just testified that the patient's description of pain was critically important. Um, and then it puts them in a position of basically saying, well, then the records just are, are not adequate, you know? Um, yeah. So it, it, it does help. I like using those, um, those ethical guidelines as a framework. Yeah, I want to take a step back, you know, before just going in and attacking the witness, I think it's important to think about, okay, what, I'm going to take a deposition of, of this witness. Uh, I mean, different people have different approaches. One is find someone else's outline, which I don't think is a good approach. But I mean, I, I think step back and, you know, do the work and think, what is it I can accomplish with this examination? What are the trial points that I want to make? Now, if you think you have a witness that's being not credible, that is being unethical, then maybe the trial point you're trying to make is the defense would do anything, including spending incredible amounts of money to bring you obviously false testimony to try to escape justice. And, you know, you need to, you know, no one is safe if they can get away with doing that. That, that may be what you want to do. But sometimes there's other, other points we can make other than just tearing people down. You know, have you ever been able to turn the defense paid opinion witness into your witness? You know, I think it's always a challenge. And the reality is these these folks are paid a lot of money uh, for a reason, right? They're good at what they do and they've got a lot of practice doing what they do. And what I learned after 20 years of practice is that I am never going to learn as much as a medical doctor, you know, in the two days that I'm uh, preparing for his or her deposition. I'm never going to learn as much as an engineer in the two or three days that I'm putting together uh, my, you know, deposition outline. Um, so knowing what you're going in to get out of the deposition is critical. You know, you've got to be focused and, and know what you can get and what you can't get. Um, what has been helpful, and I have been able to, to, to go in there and use a defense witness testimony in my favor, but only when I was willing to uh, abandon this idea that I was going to make the witness not look, you know, uh, qualified. He right. obviously was qualified. He obviously had all the years of experience. You know, you've got to abandon some of these things that you think you're going to be able to do. Um, and it's knowing your case. We've got cases sometimes, and I have a case right now, where uh, the defendant has hired biomechanical engineers to suggest that uh, my client could not have been hurt in this crash. Uh, so when I deposed the defense medical witness, I noticed that his report didn't exactly say that my client wasn't hurt in the crash. He totally minimized the injury, uh, suggested that it was exacerbated by other things, uh, but he never said that my client could not have been hurt in the wreck. So what I decided to do was simply use that testimony only to discredit the biomechanical engineers. So we talked a lot about what fabulous credentials this witness had, all the years of experience that this witness had. And then I just asked him point blank, you're not going to tell this jury that my client wasn't hurt in this crash, are you? And he said, of course not. You know, you, you engender rapport, you, you build the witness up, and then you get some very clear, simple concessions. Like, you're not going to tell this jury that this witness wasn't hurt. 
You're not going to tell this jury that it couldn't have happened. You're not going to suggest that the photos of this crash, you know, couldn't have, uh, you know, influenced your opinions on causation. And he gives you these concessions. Uh, and it's going to make the case very hard from the defense perspective to bring that biomechanical engineer when their own witness says that it, it, the client could have been hurt. Yeah, I, uh, I actually go in with the goal. My primary goal in the deposition, 80% of the time, is to try to make the defense witness my witness on something. Uh, I think if I can go in there and I'm not fighting with them, it's so off, uh, you know, when you're, when you're fighting with them, and especially if you're trying to fight with them over what a medical term means, you don't have any credibility. They do. Um, you know, and, and so unless you can really and truly show they're lying about something, uh, it really is hard to, to win. But if you do the research, and especially reading prior depots, and see what, what will they give you. And I'll give you an example that works with me a lot of times on uh, medical, defense medical experts. So someone will say, all your client's problems are due to degenerative changes. There's not a herniation from this crash. Okay. Um, do I need to disprove that to win the case? Well, my jury charge says that an aggravation, you know, uh, is just as good. I mean, to the extent that my client's condition was aggravated by the crash, it doesn't have to be wholly created by the crash. So I know my jury charge language. I know I can win with an aggravation. Um, I know the guys never get to admit that it was there, you know, that it wasn't there before. And, and frankly, most people over 30 have some degeneration anyway. So a lot of doctors, though, you go in there, okay, doctor, you're saying that what's showing on the MRI is degeneration. Is that true? Yes. Uh, most people over the age of 30 have some degeneration. Yes, that's true. Uh, there's nothing shocking about the amount of degeneration in this MRI from my, someone my client's age. Nope. Okay, well, isn't it true that degeneration usually isn't painful? Or at least it's not always painful. And you're aware that she testified that her, she did not have any pain. You, you're not calling her a liar, are you? So you have no evidence that she had any pain before this crash. Okay, so what, you and I will agree that the evidence shows that before this crash, she had degeneration, but had no pain from it. Now, when you expose a degenerated spine to trauma, that can cause the degenerated condition to become painful. So you would agree that this crash could have caused the degeneration to become painful. And then what you're treating, you're not treating the degeneration, you're treating the symptoms. So all the treatment then would be due to the pain caused by the trauma. So you'll agree that if she wasn't hurting before and she's been hurting since, the most likely cause of her pain is the crash. And the most likely cause of the, all the treatment she needed was the crash. And you, you will be so many surprised. They're so prepared to fight you on was it degenerative or not, they'll give it to you. Or they'll have to say, well, I just don't believe her. And then you go into that, they'll go, well, why don't you believe her? Uh, you know, that's, you just, because you're getting paid not to, because you're prejudiced against people that fall claims. But, uh, and, and then a lot of times also, they won't criticize the other doctor for having done surgery, for example. And so, you know, the defense lawyer will be going in and you didn't do this, you didn't do that. And like, you're not saying the other doctor committed my practice, are you? So you're not criticizing the surgery. You're just saying that you think that what was operated on was degenerative, not yeah, you know, they'll, they'll give you that a lot of times. Uh, but then again, if the pain was, the onset of pain was caused by the trauma, you wouldn't have, no one would operate on this degenerative disc if it wasn't painful, right? No, that's true. I mean, you don't operate just because there's degeneration. No, you wouldn't do that. And, and I'll get them, I'll get agreements on causation. I'll get agreements. You know, I tried a case uh, where I actually played 
the defendant's depot before I put on my doctor because I took away all, they had actually deposed my treating doctor first. So I knew what all their cross questions were. And on 85% of the questions, I got their expert to say they were wrong. And so their cross ended up being five minutes because they had nothing left to do wow. uh, because their doctor took it all away from them. Uh, so, you know, I always go in and try to make them the goal. The goal is doing that. Our, like you said before, uh, maybe the doctor is not going to give you much on the way of, you know, this wasn't degenerative or something, but you can also say, doctor, and uh, it helps to look at prior depots or, you know, you're in a depot, you don't have to play it, you know, you, you've treated a lot of patients with these kind of injuries, you know, you know that a patient can be in a minor crash and still get an injury like this. And a lot of times they'll say yes, even no property damage. So you have seen that happen in my practice. And then when they try to hire a bio, the bio is someone that's talking the exact opposite of what their own doctor sees in his real practice. So I think, you know, those kind of things, you know, how can I make this person my witness uh, is really useful. The other thing too, that um, I think uh, I've learned over the course of my practice, and it's kind of reinforced after we, you know, visited with Rodney Jew uh, several times, is talking to medical witnesses, defense-paid medical witnesses, in terms of the symptoms and not so much the terms of art. You know, talking about the radiating pain instead of calling it radiculopathy, because doctors are so much inclined to fight you on the terminology and the appropriate use of the terminology and whether or not the diagnosis was appropriate, that's easy for them. Uh, as you pointed out a minute ago, what's a lot harder for them to wiggle around is the symptoms that the patient had and the proper treatment when somebody has those symptoms. So. Um, I think if we as lawyers are prepared to just abandon this, um, you know, huge ego of wanting to talk to doctors on their terms with their terminology and instead just use lay terms like our clients are using in the in the exam rooms and in our offices, I think we can get a lot more concessions from the doctors because it's hard for them to say that they're not going to provide treatment to somebody who is complaining of pain. You know, the diagnosis and whether it was appropriate diagnosis is going to be a little bit easier for them to fight about. Um, so I've always loved the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, Rodney's advice is, you know, what is the client's actual, how does this affect the, the, your client? Um, and it's, it's, it's easy to talk about that kind of stuff with doctors in layperson's terms. And it's a truth we have, especially if we have strong before and after witnesses that our clients are usually doing okay before and then they have pain ever since. Well, what else caused it? Duh. You know, it's like, it's just a coincidence that this, the degeneration happened to start becoming painful about the same time as the crash. What are the odds? And I, and I think it's important that, you know, we ask these witnesses those questions. Yeah. You know, so if they were fine before and they're not fine after this crash, how do you explain that? Because that's what the jury's wondering. Yeah, with the biomechanical things, you know, doing your research on these uh, opinion witnesses is really important too. And, you know, a lot of times they will testify in a lot of different types of cases. And, you know, they have a, a enough opinions out there where you can find some things that are going to be outside the realm of the juror's normal experience. So let me give you an example. You have all these people from companies like Biodynamics Research Corporation. 
uh, that will say, well, I can look at the pictures of your car and say that you could not get a herniated disc in this crash. Uh, you know, you could not get anything more than some mild transient neck pain from this crash based on these volunteer crash studies we've done. If you look at those experts' other depots, they will, in more severe crashes, they will have testified you can't get a herniated disc unless you break a bone. You have to break a, you have to break a bone in the vertebrae before you can herniate a disc. And they will have testified in other cases, you cannot get a herniated disc from lifting. And they will say you can't get a herniated disc on the low back from being in a rear end car crash if the biomechanics aren't there. And so you get all these opinions that have nothing to do with your specific case, but then you go to, you're picking your jury. And, you know, I'll, I'm probably screwing this up because I'm talking about this in public now and some FDL freaking defense lawyers. <laughs> Don't talk about it. That's our secret. But I've, I've started, so I'm going to go ahead and, and, and I've done it. They can read transcripts. I've done this before in trial. So you ask uh, the, the jury in Vordire, does anyone here, either themselves or someone they know, have had uh, a back injury from lifting something? And almost always someone has a, a husband, a cousin, a parent uh, who got a hernia disc from picking something up and had to have surgery. And how about someone that was in a rear end collision? And you ask them, well, did they break any bones? No, but, and, but you always, we always end up, someone knows someone that had to get surgery for it. And so when the defense you know, expert or paid opinion witnesses says all this stuff that sounds credible, you said, well, you also say that you cannot get a hernia disc from lifting something. And you look at the juror that testified, you know, said for dire that that happened to someone she loved. And you also say you cannot get a hernia disc unless you, in a car crash, unless you also break a, a vertebrae and you look at the juror while you're asking the question that said that that happened to them. And so they know from their own life experience that this person is full of crap. Uh, they're just, they're, they're bringing in false testimony to benefit their paymasters. And that's what they really do for a living. And so sometimes those kind of things uh, are really helpful when you just find enough opinions they've given that are so ridiculous. Uh, it's really helpful. They, the other thing we've learned is just read the literature they cite. If they cite to literature in the report, just get copies of it and read it. It so often does not say what they say it did. And, and I had so much fun in one trial. So, you know, our property damage wasn't that bad. My, my client had had a uh, surgery on her neck. Uh, but one thing is her seat broke and collapsed backwards. And it probably was an old, it was an older car. It probably had some problems before, but the fact is it happened. And, you know, afterwards we had some video, you know, the seat was just kind of loose and flopping uh, after the crash. And he testified, absolutely, this crash could not have caused that seat to break. That did not happen. Uh, something must have, someone must have done something after the crash that did not happen. And luckily I had very carefully read the papers he cited. And one was by Biodynamics Research Corporation where they, they wanted to be cheap, so they used the same car more than once. But all the crashes they did, they, they did not actually cause property damage. They were like really slow speeder in collisions. But it's, if you read the paper carefully, it said the seat backs were reinforced with steel to prevent seat back collapse. So, doctor, in these, you know, our Mr. Bogus, so was his name, guy's name, impressive uh, sounding guy. He did crash tests for Honda before he went into the testifying business. So you're testifying that in, in this crash, which caused some property damage, the seat could not break. And then you bring up the study. But when BRC did their crash test at lower speeds, they had to reinforce the, the seats with steel to keep them from collapsing. And the case was over then. I mean, that was it. Well, I mean, I think it's super important to read exactly what um, these defense paid medical witnesses and, and witnesses are 
are citing to. I had a perfect example of, of that happening in one of my cases. A, a neurosurgeon um, was offering testimony that my client's herniated disc and her all of her problems were uh, degenerative and pre-existing and that they could not have been caused by this terrible crash. And uh, he cited in support of his opinions, the study that basically said everybody is walking around with, you know, herniated discs and we don't know about it. And uh, the New England Journal of Medicine article. Yes. So I pulled the, the article and the great thing about that article is it the, the sample size of the study was really, really small. Um, but the more important thing about that study is that um, it uses the terms, it doesn't use the term herniated disc. It defines the terms extruded disc and the various phases of the disc herniation. And it specifically says that its study does not apply to certain uh, abnormalities, disc abnormalities. So it's very, the study's actually very careful and says, hey, we're not making this global generalization. We're only talking about these kinds of uh, disc abnormalities. And so what we know, at least in South Texas, is that doctors around here use the terms herniated discs, extruded discs, bulging discs interchangeably. Yeah. And so I got the doctor to concede early on that his understanding of the herniated discs is that it's, he uses the term interchangeably and that in his mind, there's no distinction. And, you know, in the practice, it's, there's no distinction and it doesn't matter to him one way or the other. Um, so, when I asked him if he'd ever read that article, he certainly said that he had, but it'd been a while. Yeah. And when you point out the fact that the authors of the study specifically um, exclude a certain type of disc abnormality, he was he had egg on his face. All he could say in response was, well, you got me. Um, but if you get a witness <laughs> to say that enough times, that's awesome. You know, yeah, they lose credibility. Absolutely. Each year, the law firm of Callan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. And now, back to the show. The uh, How do you deal with the witness, you know, that just won't answer your question, the defense paid opinion witness that, you know, it's basically so many of the times they want to do it, the, the trial testimony by depo, there's no trial judge there to force them to answer the questions. Um, and so they just play games and they won't answer your questions. What do you do about that? Well, I mean, I think that's always going to be a challenge. I mean, you've got to um, videotape those all the time. Um, I've found, and, and maybe um, there are portions of that that you can use at trial that show that the witness is simply uh, being obstinate. And um, what I think is really important when you have those types of witnesses is you ask very, very simple layperson type questions that a jury, you know, a jury would be asking 
because when you're asking those kinds of questions that you think, okay, a jury's going to want to know these basic things. And if the, if the witness is refusing to cooperate or even refusing to, to concede to very basic things, um, the jury's going to get frustrated with them. And they're going to say, hey, I've got that question in the back of my mind too. And he won't even answer that question or she won't even answer that question. I think it kind of plays in your favor when you, when you, uh, when you can. The reality is if you've got an uncooperative witness, you've got to do what you can um, to get what you can out of them. Um, but sometimes what I think those depositions can reveal um, free trial is that that witness is not going to make a very good witness on the stand. And it helps the defense counsel evaluate the case from the perspective of maybe this isn't somebody that I'm going to want to call. Uh, maybe my case isn't as good as it, um, as I thought it was because this witness makes such a crappy uh, uh, presenter. Yeah. A couple of things I try to keep in mind is one, if it's a depo, you know, you choose what questions to play. So even though it's frustrating for you to have to ask the question 10, 12 different times before you get an answer, you don't have to share that entire frustrating process with the jury. You can just play the parts where you get the answer. If you're going to do that though, you have to have the self-awareness and composure to not get mad and frustrated because if it's just like, damn it, doctor, can you just say yes or no? And, you know, that doesn't play well. Uh, and so I you have to, uh, you know, just keep calm and ask it over and over. The other thing I found, and it's it works best with a witness that's been deposed a lot, and you know, uh, or you've really, really thought out your case, but I get a series of true and false questions and print them out and 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 show them on an Elmo, doctor, true or false and you know it make them fair fair true or false questions so the one i think of there's a radiologist down in harlington texas that will not answer a straight question typically and and he really puffs up his credentials and you know he, he i think he got run out of the radiology group he's with i could never get a straight answer on why he's no longer with them but he he claimed he's just making money testifying lawsuits the last time i deposed him and he claimed to have been teaching at the medical school there and then so, you know, I'd read enough depots about him and I'd done some public record inquiries uh, into his background to find out what he was doing. So, you know, isn't it true, doc, you know, true or false, Dr. I'm not going to say his name, uh, Dr. B does not get paid for teaching at any medical school. Yeah, true or false, Dr. B does not teach radiology to radiology residents. True or false, Dr. B does not teach radiology to medical doctors. True or false, Dr. B on an unpaid basis teaches radiology to medical assistant students. You know, and uh, you, you get it down there and he'll hem and haw on it, but true or false, is it true or not? And then you go into the step of the case, true or false, you can have an MRI that does not show pain. You know, true or false, you have no opinion as to whether or not the car crash caused this pain. Um, I love that idea, Michael. And I think that um, the Zoom depot would lend itself really well to that kind of questioning because you can um, share screen and put those yeah. true or false questions up there. You don't even have to check them off as you're going along because the jury can be checking them off in their mind as they're as the doctor or the witness is testifying. So I like the idea of doing that. It's best to try to get the witness to, you know, when you're doing them live, to get the witness to sign them if they will. Sometimes they, 
they will sometimes they won't but that's really nice because you get these great trial exhibits um but that's the great thing i like about the true and false is that then we can use them at with other witnesses we can use them at uh, at closing if they have multiple witnesses we can you know find questions we have three or four witnesses agree that something's true that we you know that we, we want to say is true so it's a it's a lot of fun to do that yeah i like that idea it's, a, it's kind of like our yes no matrix on liability but you're using it for other other points in the yeah. depot so have you had any just fun unexpected gifts from a uh, defense paid opinion witness before um well i did have a witness once uh and again this goes to uh just the sheer generosity of our uh men and women in the plaintiff's bar who are willing to share depositions. Um, you know, I love reading depositions, prior testimony of the people I'm going to depose because you always find little nuggets of, of things that um, they've said before, little terms of art that are kind of unique to them. And so I had this one witness, um, he said, uh, he was an orthopedic surgeon and he'd said in a prior deposition testimony five years prior, that he had a, a rule for diagnosing a herniated disc. He called it an across the room test. And if he could see uh, the uh, herniation from across the room, it was a herniation to him, you mm -hmm. know? And in that case, he said that it required surgery. So we, I loosely was talking to him about, uh, I, I knew that testimony going in. I didn't ask him about it at all, of course but it was a trial uh, deposition and uh, we had uh, displayed the MRI films and some of the exhibits on a screen across the room in the, in the conference room for his depot. And so during the uh, question, initial questioning, I asked him if he could see my client's MRI from across the room and could, yeah. she, could he see these and that things from across the room? And he, I don't think he realized why I kept asking from across the room, but that was the little theme, you know, yeah. that I was using across the room. And so sure enough, um, he concluded that my client did not uh, need surgery. He could see her herniation from across the room, but he didn't think she needed surgery. I was like, well, didn't you, um, don't you have a personal philosophy, a rule that if you can see a herniation from across a room, they need surgery. And he's like, no, he completely had forgotten about that testimony five years ago. Yeah. So it was really nice to be able to pull the exact across the room testimony for him. But, um, you know, those are always fun little things that you're not going to get if you're not, you know, uh, collaborating with the plaintiff's bar. It's also great to find the ones where they testified, you know, as a treater for their patients and how much more generous they are um, than when they're getting paid by the other side. Uh, my favorite gift, uh, I was, I had a case in Hidalgo County, Texas, which is a 95% at least uh, Mexican-American jury pool. Uh, and so the defense hired some former sheriff's deputy, non-engineer from uh, Los Angeles who had moved to Texas as their uh, paid opinion witness to say that uh, it was a hit and one crash, that the damage didn't match up, and that you know, their vehicle could not have been the vehicle that hit our vehicle, even though, you know, uh, their driver had disappeared. Like he, uh, they were all drinking beer. Someone left the keys to someone else, leaves with the vehicle undamaged, going to a beer barn. 
uh, a vehicle's exiting that beer barn. It's the same type of vehicle, hits our vehicle and runs off. Their vehicle comes back with damage. He claims he, he doesn't know whatever happened to the driver. And his buddy who was driving never showed up again, supposedly, and he didn't know where he was and didn't know anything about him. Um, a totally not credible story. And, you know, I'm, and I'm not going to win on, on fighting. And but what, what does this scratch me mark mean or what does this angle mean? Um, so, you know, I'm just at, I'm thinking my point I want to make is it's wrong to let people drink and drive. And so I ask him, is it ever all right to get drunk with your buddies and give your car keys to one of your drunk buddies to go buy more beer? And the in deposition, the witness says, well, it happens a lot in the black and Mexican communities. Like, oh, boy. And, you know, the defense oh. lawyer's cringing, you know, and, you know, I ask him to explain. And so, you know, we're going to trial. I'm getting ready to depose them. And the judge says, Cowan, you are not to bring that up. You're not going to make this trial about race. I'm okay, judge, I wouldn't try to make the trial about race. And so I asked him the exact same question, honestly, just wanting to make the point that it's bad to drink and drive. Uh, and assuming that he would have been prepped not to say something this stupid twice. So I asked him at trial, would you agree that it's never okay to get drunk with your buddies and give one of your drunk buddies the key to drive your car to get more beer? Because you ask me this in deposition, I'll say it again. It happens a lot in the black and Mexican communities. And, I, and I've worked both of them as an officer. I worked those communities as an officer. And, you know, 11 of my 12 jurors were Mexican-American, and they all swore to us after the $380-something-thousand-dollar verdict on a minimum limits policy that that testimony had nothing to do. Of course not. In fact, we didn't even have a current surgical recommendation that we had a doctor saying, well, she at some point in her life, probably in her 60s or 70s, will need surgery. <laughs> well, you do get you do get stupid testimony like that. I had this one case. Um, uh, I represented a woman who'd been sexually assaulted in her home by a furniture delivery man. And the defense counsel had hired a uh, psychiatrist to um, testify that her symptoms were exaggerated, uh, that her PTSD was exaggerated. And, and um, we talked for a long time in this witness's deposition about all of these uh, horrible uh, sexual assault cases that he'd been involved with and people he treated in the past. And uh, his ultimate testimony which, you know, just fell in my lap, frankly, yeah. was that um, my client's rape wasn't that bad. Yeah. And, you know, I was floored when he said that. And um, so, you know, the next follow-up question is, you know, what's a good rape? If that one wasn't bad, <laughs> you know, you know, what's a good rape? And it's very hard for him to wiggle out of that, but he was trying to obviously talk about the, the severity of assaults that he'd seen, um, but it was hard, hard, hard for him to wiggle out of that horrible testimony. And needless yeah. to say, that uh, that case settled uh, very quickly after his testimony. I bet. Um, but sometimes people say things that just kind of just shock you. It's interesting because, you know, I've really been undergoing a, a change in philosophy uh, this last year on expert depositions. Uh, you know, I was taught uh, when I was learning to try cases, you know, not to beat someone up in their depot. Uh, 
because I was told the matador does not tell the bull how he's going to kill him. Uh, and so, you know, unless it's a trial depot, you know, just get it, get some concessions, get, you know, get the facts laid out, but save it all for cross. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, I worked for a while for a really, really, really good trial lawyer. Um, and he did not believe in, in deposing many defense experts or defense paid opinion witnesses because it's like, look, we've got their reports most of the time. We've got a hundred other depots they've given. You know, when you take their deposition, you give them practice. Um, and so for a long time, in fact, uh, Mallory um, Peacock, our other partner, and I were talking yesterday, and she was prepping for like a truck expert, trucking expert uh, de depot that we're doing on a, on a defense witness who we actually have used many times as a plaintiff's witness, but he's against us in this case. And so we're brainstorming that. And she goes, I was looking for a trucking expert depot, and, you know, I don't think you've taken one in years. I said, well, I haven't. You know, usually we have the reports. I can take them to trial. I don't need to do it. Uh, but I'm really, you know, as we were prepping, I'm thinking, uh, and we're going through all the great concessions we're going to be able to get out of this guy. You know, all the great stuff we can now play in our case in chief that we're going to get out of this witness. Uh, I'm really going, coming around to wanting to do more of these. And, and as far as the, you know, I remember I was having Joe Freed, who's a great trucking lawyer. He was, I think, one of our first guests on this podcast. Uh, you know, he was uh, in San Antonio deposing a defense paid opinion witness. Uh, and he and I had dinner the night before. And I asked him, you know, well, Joe, is this a trial depot or a discovery depot? He goes, every depot I take is a trial depot. I, 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 I make no distinction. I go for the kill every single time. Um, and, uh, you know, he's doing incredibly well. Uh, so I'm really coming around to wanting to depose them, not because I I know what I need to know what they're going to say. I can tell you before they hire an expert or a purported expert in a case, I can tell you maybe not the names, but what the opinions are going to be and what the theory is going to be in almost every case. I mean, because they're, they're predictable. The defense is so predictable. Uh, their paid opinion witnesses are so predictable. They always say the same thing, you know, and, and make the same arguments. But the our ability to get good trial clips uh, – is, and good things to support our own experts uh, and our own experts' methodology, I think is so useful. I think I'm going to start deposing them a lot more. I think it's a case-by-case -case basis. Like you said, sometimes you've got medical paid witnesses who you know have got tremendous qualifications and their opinions are going to be what they are. And so you may not make a lot of hay by deposing those folks except to discover some bias or, or some um, impartiality on their points. But I, I think you're I could, right. I mean, I think I can turn almost any medical witness. So that's just me. I'm, I, maybe I'm crazy or egotistical, but. <laughs> well, you know, maybe you can. I think at the end of the day, they have to admit that if our client was not hurting before and they're hurting afterwards, that the class is most likely the cause. They either right. have to admit that or they sound stupid. Yeah. And, and then they, they do lose credibility with the jury. I think it's just it, you've got to boil it down to something that simple. Do you ever look into, you know, people think in stories, do you ever explore the story of why someone became a paid opinion witness for insurance companies? You know, I, you know, after you, uh, after we start practicing together and you've shared with me some of the stories that you've um, uncovered about why people do, why doctors suddenly leave their practices to do this, um, I've started exploring that a lot more. I deposed a doctor last week. And um, he testified that he was paid 
$1,250 to do his uh, record review and report. Um, and when we reviewed his file that he uploaded via Zoom, you know, uh, when he, we reviewed his file, he had 52 volumes of medical records that he reviewed. And so I did the math and I was like, you know, you didn't get paid very much on this case on, you know, on why would you, you know, what's going on with your medical practice that you, you're getting paid so little doing this. And I've, obviously I didn't ask the question quite like that, right, but right. It, it did make me wonder, and I'm sure it'll make the jury wonder what's, you know, what's so uh, trying about his medical practice that he's now finding himself uh, lured by doing medical record reviews for. And I kept asking him uh, why he was testifying now for companies that have been sued by people who are hurt. And that's just why, you know, how often are you hired uh, by companies who've been sued by people who are hurt? And that was the theme in the deposition. He'd somehow left his medical practice uh, exactly. component of it to testify on behalf of companies who'd been sued by people who were hurt. I've had him even, you know, say admit to having a, a medical practice in a lawsuit business. A lot of times they get sloppy and they'll agree with your, your terminology. And then you get all this great testimony about the lawsuit business, which then they're stuck with from then on out because it's prior testimony. You know, I found that no one goes to medical school with the dream of reviewing records and testifying in lawsuits. Uh, at least if, if someone does it, they're a rare sociopath because that's not why people want to become doctors um, or engineers for that matter. I mean, not very many people want to go to engineering school because they want to go testify in lawsuits. They go to engineering school because they want to design bridges or products or make the world a better place or, you know, have a steady job, whatever it is. Uh, so I think exploring those things and sometimes like with the doctors, sometimes because they're crappy surgeons, like this one doctor in uh, South Texas. And he testifies all the time in back and neck cases, saying people don't need surgery. And you find out that he hasn't done a surgery himself since 1991. In fact, he's uh, he's not even he doesn't carry the malpractice insurance to do spine surgeries. So he's not credentialed in any hospital. He, his insurance wouldn't cover him unless he went and paid a greater premium. You know, so why is someone who doesn't do this themselves giving opinions on it and lawsuits? And, you know, I found out from his former partners who won't testify to it, but it's just he sucks at it. Uh, and so no one else refers in business. And so this is what he has to do to survive. Yeah. But, even if the lawyer is making um, making some extra money and making more money, the reality is they make more the less time they have to put into it. And so in the deposition I took um, last week, uh, the doctor who was paid so little for that record review, I was able to get... Um, some prior testimony and prior um, reports that he'd written. And kind of, I did a share screen where we lined them all up and they all used the same formulaic language. All of yep. them said that it was a sprain strain and all of them said that it was degenerative and none of those people need, needed surgery. So I think it helps the jury kind of go, well, wait a minute, he's not paid very much. And he's using the same language on all of these reports and, and testimony. You know, he's just phoning it in. And so I think it, it builds that um, question in the jury's mind. Ironically, sometimes when they're being paid a whole ton of money, it actually enhances their credibility some. Exactly. You know, the, the ones that are cheap uh, selling their opinions for, for almost nothing and just giving a, you know, a, like a rubber stamping everything are the ones that have the least credibility. 
what I found a lot of times in the medical uh, field, especially, is there is a reason why they can no longer do what they wanted to do. Uh, and a lot of times it actually has to do with injuries. Uh, they just can't do surgery anymore. And so as a result, they've had to go on into into te into uh, testifying for a living. And sometimes those uh, stories, if you can get into them, are remarkably similar to our client story. There's a, there's a doctor, I think he's back to doing mostly workers' comp now. Uh, he used to testify a lot in lawsuits uh, out of Austin, Texas. And he used to be a regular surgeon and didn't really testify in lawsuits, but he had degenerative issues with his neck. Not enough. I mean, he had degeneration, but he was still able to run marathons. He could do surgeries. He could do everything. And then he was riding a wave runner in a lake and he hit a wave too hard. Oh my. The contact between the wave and the wave runner did not do any damage at all to the wave runner. The wave runner said no property damage, but because of that, it aggravated his previously mildly symptomatic degenerative condition where he needed a four level fusion. And as a result, he no longer had the steady hands he needed to do surgeries. And so, so here you are, my client got ruined. It had more property damage than you did got a less invasive surgery than you did. You can't do, you can't basically work anymore as a surgeon because of the crash, but then my client didn't need surgery or wow. my client couldn't get hurt, you know, and it's the so same. How did you get that? How did you find out about that prior incident involving the doctor? I uh, read a lot of prior depots and then followed up on more questions. And, you know, a lot of times these are people that you depose over and over again, but you know, it, it just doesn't hurt. Uh, you, you build on what you can from prior stuff. You ask around in the medical community from other doctors that know them. A lot of times the doctors, the, the doctors won't testify to it, but if you talk to them, they have really bad uh, reputations in the overall medical community um, and no one refers them business and you can get some good stories on what's going on with them. Goes back to investigating who the witness is. One of my favorite yep. things is going on LinkedIn and, and uh, Googling our, our witnesses and finding whatever dirt we can find on them. Yeah, and then getting the websites from either the witness themselves or from the, a lot of them work for these medical review companies. And, you know, a lot of times there's things on how we can save you money, we can minimize claims, that kind of stuff when the review service is trying to sell the uh, service and you can get some good, some good dirt in that way. I guess one last note, you know, and, and uh, Dorothy Sims, and she's actually going to be on, a, on an episode later this fall, uh, but She's done incredible work, and we've done some of it ourselves on just when you have these repeat players who testify for a living, check their qualifications. In uh, an example, I don't, I don't even remember the lady's name now. Was it Reed? She was making accusations against Joe Biden uh, recently, uh, you know, claiming uh, that he assaulted her or something while she worked for him. Well, it turned out she's given uh, testimony in all these rape cases claiming to have a college degree that she, in fact, didn't have. Oh my. And there have been a number of people that have claimed to have had degrees or claimed to have had certifications that they, in fact, did not have when someone, you know, the, uh, someone who's a true sociopath can just make up qualifications and go testify. Uh, and if you don't go double check, you won't catch them. So it's, it's worth checking because sometimes they really do just make stuff up does require time and, and, and energy, uh, but it's certainly something that you can delegate to a, a staff person to, to just double check credentials. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, a lot of the stuff you can, you can, you got to do it yourself the first time or two. And once you learn how to do it, you can, 
break it up step by step and have an intern, a student, someone like that that'll be excited about doing it, go do that digging. But it's so fun when you hit something. Well, Sonia, thank you for joining me today. I uh, hope everyone- Thanks for having uh, me, Michael. It's fun. Yeah, I hope everyone, I hope we provided something useful. Um, if you guys have some tips or some questions about experts, send them in. Uh, if you have good tips, we'll be glad to share them with anyone. If you have questions, I'll be glad to uh, address them at our next Facebook Live. Uh, one last thing, we are having our annual event. It usually is a, uh, I do my Cowan's Big Rig Boot Camp. It's a 10 to 4.30 uh, CLE on trucking cases. We're going to talk about all aspects of working up and trying a trucking case, especially, you know, how to depose the defense paid opinion witnesses, the truck driver, the safety director, uh, enlisting the jury in Vordire, all kinds of great stuff uh, with a lot of surprise celebrity appearances. Uh, I don't want to give them all away. We do have Charlie Sheen and uh, Carol Baskin, of all people, from the Tiger King. Uh, they actually will relate. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, it's August 13th. It's free. So please, uh, if you're interested, if you do trucking cases and you're a plaintiff's lawyer, uh, you get CLE credit for it. It is free. It will be a lot of fun. It's August 13th. Go to BigRigBootCamp.com. That's B-I-G-R-I-G-B-O-O-T-C-A-M-P.com uh, and register. I hope you guys can join us. Talk to you all soon. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at TrialLawyerNation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.